Welcome to the Theolit podcast, um, Super Bowl Sunday. We are recording at 4.52 p.m. Hopefully, we'll be done. This is a short poem we're doing today. Um, we're doing a Wendell Berry poem today, so it should not take too long. And we'll be done, and then we're going to watch the Super Bowl together. So, who's who you guys got today? I'll be going for the New England Patriots. <laughs> Seeing if anyone caught that. I'm just there for the food. Yeah, I'm. I don't know. The last three or four Super Bowls, um, I kind of really didn't care who won. So you've got Mahomes and Brady. Either you know, two examples of greatness, I guess. Speaking of greatness, we are talking about one of my favorite authors, poets, activists, novelists. I, I don't know. I mean, there's so many things he is done but today we are talking about Wendell Berry if you've been following Theolit for a long time you probably remember that Wendell Berry's poem like snow was the actual uh, was the very first work of literature featured on Theolit and I guess appropriately today we're got a little bit of snow not too much but enough for Tennessee it's still white on the mountains around us so um, Wendell Berry from Kentucky some of you may be familiar with Wendell Berry's, um, more of his essays than his literature. Uh, a lot of you remember The Art of Commonplace and his more recent work, The Art of Loading Brush, both of which I recommend. Um, but then there's also his novels. Um, probably Hannah Coulter and Javer Crow are the most familiar. And if you've read, uh, if you've read any of his novels and if you've read his short stories, you will be familiar with the poem we are reading today called In Art, Rowan Berry's Barn. Any Wendell Berry fans out there will absolutely be familiar with Art and Mart Rowan Berry. And Andy Catlett finds his way in this poem as well. So something interesting, uh, Donovan and Denise has not read um, as much Wendell Berry as I have. Um, so we decided to do a poem for our next podcast. And I sent them a list of poems from Wendell Berry, uh, secretly hoping we would go with the Mad Farmer's Manifesto. <laughs> Um, but I did not tell them that, and they chose in Art Rowanberry's barn. So I want to give them a chance to let you know why they thought we should feature this poem, which is a great poem, on our podcast. I think not being familiar with Wendell Berry's writings and um, reading some of his other stuff and not necessarily being able to uh, relate to it or to find maybe as much meaning um, in his other work, I think the simplicity of this poem and the care that seems to characterize art's personality just by the stuff that you find in his barn i think that we could relate the most to that so that's really why um i voted for this one and i honestly just went with denise's decision on this one um and just kind of followed her lead so there you have it folks the earth shattering reasons we chose in art rowan berry's barn um, it is a great poem yeah my um, aunt I guess my answer to that was simple, just like the barn. <laughs> nice. So a lot of themes in Wendell Berry, and I don't want to go through all of that because uh, there's, there's, I mean, 
just way too much for one podcast. We do want to get into poems soon. Um, but some of the themes that you find in Wendell Berry that um, I, th- I think a lot of people miss this because you read Wendell Berry, you read a lot about farming, and it's very much agrarian writing. And a lot of people is like, man, I just want to move to Kentucky, find some cheap land, and <laughs> start a farm. And I don't think that that's at all what he's trying to get at. Um, Burley Coulter, another character in a lot of the novels, uh, probably my favorite character in the novels from Wendell Berry, talks about membership a lot. And if you read Wendell Berry's essays, you hear the term membership. And I think a lot of what um, Wendell Berry tries to, to get across to his readers is being a member of the place where you're from. And I think that's really, really hard to do. Uh, for example, right now we're sitting in my basement in Bryceville, Tennessee. This is where I'm from, uh, but I just moved here about a, moved back here about a year ago. I've lived in Miami, Florida for four years. Lived in Chattanooga for four years. And Donovan, you're from. I just moved here from Chattanooga as well. And you grew up in West Tennessee. Okay, I was so trying probably, to remember the name, but I couldn't remember the name. Yeah, so probably an area very sim not too dissimilar from the area that Wendell Berry writes about a lot. Right. And Lots Denise, of farming. Where would you say you're from? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> I moved a little bit around when I was a kid. So I would say the New England area because I really lived uh, primarily in Massachusetts and New York. Yeah. I think we're so mobile in culture today, uh, in our culture, that you know, whether it's jobs or love or whatever, just you know, wanting to explore new things that we tend to to look at where we've not gone, um, where we where we've not been, and I, I think sometimes we want to. It's like the grass is always greener thing, and I think Wendell Berry pushes really hard against that, uh, in the sense of, you know, where you're from, you're part of a membership, but that's only true of certain communities mm-hmm. anymore. I mean, you know, where I was, where where I was at in Miami, like that didn't feel true. I don't know about, you know, from you guys. I mean, you, know, you were in Chattanooga for a while. You were in Winston-Salem. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yep. Um, did you guys, have you guys ever been somewhere where you feel like, you know, there was a membership in that community that you belonged to? And, and even going back today, like you're still part of that? I feel like New York City for me was that. Um, I lived on the 14th floor of a high rise and um, it was Section 8 housing and Everyone that had lived there has lived there for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Actually, people die there. Um, That's just kind of how long Mm. it's been. And so my godmother's still there um, and my brother is still there, but we've all kind of moved out. But it's so interesting that when I call back or I, you know, reconnect with people from there, it's like the memories never change. And in a way, we never change. We're still, you know, no matter how old I am, I'm still going to be their little girl in their eyes, you know, Mm. no matter how old I am, they're still going to have the nicknames that they called me as a child and, <laughs> and being married still isn't real to them. Um, and even when I start my family, you know, my sister started a family, uh, sooner than we have. And she's still called the little girl in Spanish. Um, so it's just kind of interesting to see how that, and I also think that membership exists too in, in the Hispanic community that was there that moved to Massachusetts. Cause even though we, we weren't, um, we didn't know each other as children, Whenever, you know, you say you're from New York, there's just like this, oh, you're from New York City, what part? Oh, you're from this borough? And if they're from that borough, there's this automatic membership of like, I know what you've experienced. Yeah. So I do see that a lot there. But I also see that in Tennessee, you know, um, we'll 
meet people out and about and uh, people will talk about, you know, uh, areas in Knoxville, you know, whether it's Powell, whether it's um, Johnson City, um, I think, is it Thomasville or I don't remember what town, but anyway, um, they talk about their small towns as if they are members of those towns, even though, you know, they do everything in Knoxville, they still consider those ties to the small towns that they live in very significant. So most important question of the day, what were your nicknames? Uh, Nanyarita and uh, Grande, which is just big in Spanish. And I mean, we're, we're not very original. Um, if you were a fat kid, you were called fat. Gordo, gorda. You know, it's just, you're tall and, you know, even if you're not tall as an adult, if you were tall as a kid, it's big, you know, so we weren't super original um, in our nicknames. Yeah, my nickname was Mr. Block because I had a, a flat top haircut. So my uncle started calling me Mr. Block when I was younger. So where you're from now, if I'm remembering correctly, yours is more of a rural area where you're from? Yes, that is correct. And I think I very much have, I guess, a membership in that community because I know we're going to get into the poem, but I think about just all the things that were left there and kind of in their same place. I feel the kind of that same sense when I go back to my hometown. You know, everything's the the same. I find myself getting into the same habits. You know, I go back to the same lingo that I talk with high school friends, and and just all those things that it's just just really feels, I guess, uh, familiar to me. Uh, so when I go back, I still feel that sense of belonging, and to a point, I think I still have that with Chattanooga as well. Uh, especially being so recently removed from that area. I think I definitely have uh, a strong sense of community there too. Yeah, there's something about place that creates a membership and a community that is almost unaware. When I was yeah. overseas once, um, I met someone on, it was like a van or airport shuttle or something. This is in Southeast Asia. And they're from Washington. And I'm like, hey, I'm from America too. You know, and there's like this shared set of values we have yeah. as americans and then the smaller the community gets the more those values are alike and mm -hmm. you know even the other day i was i was talking to a guy who just grew up down the road from me uh, or grew up on the mountain um, by my house and he just moved away I mean, literally like probably 15 miles away you know not mm -hmm. far at all um, and i asked him you know how that was going he's like man i love the place i love her house i love mm -hmm. the land i mean or he's like we have you know, a lot more acreage and, and, and we're not on a hill. I mean, he was, his old house is literally just right on a hill. And, um, every time I drive by, I would just feel so bad that he had to weed eat that. It was just <laughs> so steep and you can't like too steep to mow. You've got to yeah. do it all that way. And he's like, but I miss my neighbors, mm -hmm. you know? And I just remember as a kid, you know, every Saturday that night, my brother, like we were all in the garage doing stuff together. And you'd hear, you know, coming up the with a gravel driveway, you'd hear a car coming up. I get so excited because it'd be someone from the community, and we all relied on each other. Um, you know, there's there's Mike down the road who can literally you know, fix anything. And this guy was rebuilding engines when he's like 13 years old. Um, and whenever there's something going on with my car, I don't understand. I go to him. Um, but something that I've noticed and and a theme of of a lot of Wendell Berry's writings. I think kind of you know, carries this as well as um, even you know, two days ago, I was changing headlights for Stephanie, my wife's car. And I was so frustrated because I'm, she's got a GMC terrain. And I'm like, this is the dumbest design ever. 
I mean, I'm having to, to take the ECM off, pull that off, pull another bracket off, pull the battery bracket off, take the battery out, and still can barely get to where the, the headlight is. I'm like, this this should be such a simple thing. It's taking me like 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Stephanie was making dinner, so she let me know. I, it took me like 30 minutes to change one headlight. I'm getting ready to start another side, and she, she lets me know dinner's ready. So we come in to eat supper. I'm like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check and see what tools I need to, before mm-hmm. I take start taking the air intake off and stuff for the other side. That way I don't have to keep going back and forth between the mm-hmm. garage. I can just get it done you know, quickly. So I go on the video and it turns out on the fender well, there's this little plastic piece with one screw. You take <laughs> that screw in, pull the little plastic piece out, and you can get right to it. And I mm-hmm. changed this one in five minutes. And I told my dad about it yesterday. Stephanie and I went to see my parents and... He's like, well, if you had called, I could have told you that. And I got to thinking about it. I'm like, you know what? Ten years ago, I probably would have called because I, you know, wasn't, I didn't have a smartphone, didn't mm-hmm. have Google. I would have called him. But it's almost like now we have so much information at our fingertips. It's taking away the reliance on each other, which which the poem kind of talks about too. And it's taking away what it means to be a member of the community mm-hmm. where you've got different people who can do different things and and working together you form a really special membership and kind of like what you said you go back to massachusetts or new york and the people have been there their whole life and you go back 15 years from now you're still going to be a member of that Um, and it's nothing that you did there's no dues to pay necessarily there's no there's nothing you do to become one you were just born there and you grew up there. And I think that's something that's really special um, and something that, you know, is very much a theme of Wendell Berry. And, and the only reason we go through all this before we're going into the poem is I think, and I want this to be the backdrop through which a lot of the poem is interpreted. And I think, you know, the Internet in a way has formed a community. But I think the problem with the Internet is that that community is not immediately next to us. And so I was reading, a, one of my students had written about how she had found community online and how that community was stronger than the community that was around her and how thrilled she was that she had found this community. But then I thought, you know, her membership in that community, it definitely benefited her, but she wasn't really able to do much for those people. But the people that she could do something around, the people that she could, you know, make an impact on, that she could truly build something with, she was ignoring and, and could not do that because she was so wrapped up in the community that was online. So I also feel like the online community, while it can be wonderful in many ways, um, it also can hurt us because we can't really contribute as much to the online community as we can to someone next to us. And, I, and like, I love the internet. I love what it can do. Um, in fact, um, the Church Digital, which is a really cool organization, I work with them a lot and write for them. I'm leading a cohort for them. They're church planners who are planning a digital church. And there's a part of that that's really exciting because, like you said, there is a community there. But the community that you find online, it it can never replace, you know, being under the same hood of the car as your neighbor that lives down the street. Or in, you know, Port, Port William, Kentucky, Wendell Berry, um, Port Royal, I think, is where he's actually from. Port William is the fictional name. Um, you know, going to your neighbor and helping them plow their field, helping them harvest their crop. Um, that's a totally different kind of 
community and a richer experience than anything that could be online. And um, as much as I see online as a tool for advancing the kingdom and uh, you know, sharing Christ through that, it still very much worries me in a sense because it's like God made us to be physical beings in the physical world. And the more the virtual reality, I think, takes over, the more we're removed from the physical world. I think the more issues we're going to see mentally and uh, and physically. I mean, we're fatter now than we've ever been, and I think that's that's part of it too. A lot of studies are showing that anxiety has increased because of the isolation, even though the physical isolation, even though mentally we might not be isolated. So I think there's something to be said about that too. Um, I know I wasn't raised necessarily with technology in the same way. I mean, I was a senior in in high school writing on a typewriter, you know, and and not a computer and social media was out, but I I knew it very briefly. So I know that as an adult now, when I'm on technology for too long, I get anxious. And if I'm on social media for too long, you know, my husband can definitely see when I'm on social media because I tend to be a little more snippy or I tend to be a little less satisfied or anything like that. So I think There's definitely something to be said about that. So speaking of the real world, let's enter into the fictional world of Port William. (laughs) Um, This is what I love about literature, though. It's it's not real, but it so much speaks to what is real in life. Very familiar. This is a short poem. I know we kind of mentioned this before we started, but I think we will go ahead and read this. You know, it's not too long at all. Denise, would you want to read this? Sure. Beginning in Art Rowanberry's Barn. In Art Rowanberry's barn, when Art's death had become quietly a fact among the other facts, Andy Catlett found a jacket made of the top half of a pair of coveralls after the legs wore out, for Art never wasted anything. Andy found a careful box made of wood scraps with a strap for a handle. It contained a handful of small nails wrapped in a piece of newspaper, several large nails, several rusty bolts with nuts and washers, some old harness buckles and rings, rusty but usable. Several small meal boxes, empty, and three hickory nuts, hollowed out by mice. And all these things, Andy put back where they had been, for time in the world and other people to dispense with as they might, but not by him to be despised. This long putting away of things may be useful was not all of Art's caretaking. He cared for creatures also, every day, leaving his tracks in dust, mud, or snow as he went about, looking after his stock or gave strength to lighten a neighbor's work. Andy found a brittle made of several lengths of balling twine, knotted to a rusty bit, an old set of chain harness, four horseshoes of different sizes, and three hammer stones picked up from the open furrow on days, now as perfectly forgotten as the days when they were lost. He found a good farrier's knife, and all a key to a lock that would no longer open. So there is in art Rowanberry's Barn. We'll put a link to this in the notes, too. Um, you can find this online. So initial thoughts. I mean, when you guys read this, you read through the other poems, and, and you kind of shared a little bit, Denise, um, kind of you know while we spoke this, and Donovan was evidently subscribing to Happy Wife, Happy Life. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, But initial thoughts on the poem. So I think for me, um, I personally, when I read poetry, I always look for a lot of you know hidden meaning and a lot of like flashiness with the word choice and and I think that Wendell Berry um, he's very simple in his word choice but I think that it takes a second look to truly find the value in this poem 
Um, I think initially when we read it, you know, we were just thinking, well, what, what can we see in this? I mean, it's a guy who's going through a barn, um, looking at a bunch of stuff that was left behind. And then it ends with a lock that would no longer open. Um, but then I always, just like I always tell my students, you know, you got to wonder why, why do they use the words that they use, whether they're, you know, simple or not, why do they do that? And so kind of going back through, um, when he talks a lot about, he talks a lot about rust and things that are hollow and things that are, um, just wearing away and, and just reading that word rust really reminded me of, you know, Matthew 16, 6, 19 through 20. It talks about, you know, um, your treasures and, and storing up treasures. And interestingly, Art didn't have a lot of treasures that he stored up. Um, and, you know, that verse in Matthew where it talks about, um, pulling it up right now, it says, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. But store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. You know, even Andy's like going away was quiet, but the stuff that he left behind that, that did rust, those things I found to be significant, you know, um, they were tools, they were clothes and, and in those tools and in those clothes, you know, by looking at those things, you could see how all of these things, you know, art had used to help other people, you know, even where, when it talks about the pair of overalls, you know, he didn't waste anything. Um, when it talks about, you know, all the rusty bolts and the nuts and the washers. And, you know, I can only infer that like, he probably used that to fix things or to keep things going. And then later on in the poem, Wendell Berry says that, you know, he cared for creatures also, you know, and, and he cared for people and he cared for lightening their load. So it just really brought me back to this idea of like, you know, with us living in this world today, you know, and, and the stuff that we do, you know, what, what are we leaving behind? Um, and what, what do those things say about us? Um, you know, for Andy, they reminded him of art's character and how art was a giving and simple and quiet man, you know, and I just wonder sometimes what, what will I leave behind, you know, um, especially when we think about the digital footprint that we leave behind. Was yeah. There, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I thought it was very fitting that you said, you know, at first glance that there wasn't a lot of flashiness. You didn't really recognize anything. And he even talks about how the stuff was not to be despised uh, or devalued by, you know, art himself. But someone else going through the barn may just write off the things and just think this is just, you know, all junk. But to your point, too, of it really showed a picture of who he was and his character, who he was as a person and just the uh, thought and care that he had for other people. I think that's, I think that's very significant in this, the story that the things that he left behind, uh, you know, tell. Yeah. And like you were saying, um, I forgot, I forgot the exact phrase you used, but you were talking about like the rust and, uh, you know, things are falling apart, mm -hmm. the hollowed out. I think it was hickory nuts. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, you know, like you, you, you see in the beginning of the poem that this is the very first line. It talks about art's death. So we know that as Andy Catlett, and um, like I said, if you've read Wendell Berry, you know Andy Catlett is a narrator in a lot of the um, stories. And interestingly enough, Andy Catlett's, um, I guess, lifespan very much matches Wendell Berry's. And so I think a lot of what Andy Catlett, Andy Catlett's voice is Wendell Berry's voice. In a lot of his writings and so 
so as Andy's going through the barn and he sees, you know, these tools and things that are rusting and wasting away, I think there's very much a parallel to Art's life as well that, you know, when you when you read through the history and the stories of Port William, you see, you know, Art as a young boy, you see him grow into a man and 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 not just a man, but you know, very strong man, you know, someone who's able to take care of himself, someone who's very independent, you know, someone who's just who's farmer. You know, like, you know, whatever you picture a farmer as, um, you know, but he's not using all the latest technology. He's mm. doing things what we would call the hard way because hard way is sometimes the best for the for the farm. Um, so being very conscious of those things. But he he starts out and as a boy, he gets older, he becomes a man. He's very strong, very good farmer. Even into his 40s, he's able to do a lot of hard work. And then eventually you see him farming later in his life and starting to deteriorate um, until, you know, right there near the end of his life, the most that he does tends to be um, his his daily walks. Uh, I forgot his dog's name, but he'll often go and he's the quieter of the brothers. His, his brother Mart is always with other people, but Art will go on walks and, and that itself, you know, sometimes takes it out of him. And, you know, we don't like thinking about that but I, th I think the parallel here is really key as we reflect on our life that you know that in one sense we are wasting away and we know that there's resurrection coming and we'll live eternally but this this is the life we've been given to make eternity count for something and you know as we as we are like these tools and we're rusting and falling apart and wasting away you know I think um, reflecting on how we live our lives is extremely key here and that has to be you know if Andy Callett is the one seeing this he's seen art waste away kind of like his tools and now he's looking back at his life and and basically this barn is a picture of who art was and of what art has left behind mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's obviously much more than just what he's physically left behind mm -hmm. yeah and I, th I think too uh, it's very telling that what he left behind you know, it wasn't a you know a, a lot of expensive things. You know that would we would find value in, but the value was in uh, like what he did with the things, the, how mm -hmm. he used the tools, and yeah. how he made it use the tools to make someone else's life better. And I think that's one of the principles that you know we can learn from Art's life. You know, as well as you know he watched over other people. You know, and he helped lighten their load and he strengthened others. You know, in the part that it talks about you know, how he put all these things away, but he didn't just spend all this time storing things away, you know. It says he cared for creatures also every day, leaving his tracks in dust, mud, or snow as he went about looking after his stock or gave strength or lightened a neighbor's work. And, you know, initially when I read the part where he leaves his tracks in dust, mud, or snow, I thought, well, I didn't think anything about it, to be honest. But then looking back at it, you know, if you leave your tracks in dust, mud, or snow, those tracks will fade away pretty quickly, you know, whether it's with the weather or whether it's someone coming along. And I think that, again, speaks to, you know, our lives and, and how um, fragile our lives are and how it just withers away. You know, in Isaiah 40, verse 7, it talks about, you know, how the grass uh, withers beneath God's breath. And so do we, you know, and I think this is just a great reminder of um, how frail and how uh, brief our life is. Yeah, and I think too, like even though those tracks are very 
you know, brief in our life is very brief. I think, too, you know, those tracks were used as something for someone else to find their way back if they were lost. And I think that speaks a lot about our lives, too. While we may not be here long, someone can look at our life and find their way or learn something from the example that we set, too. Snap, snap, babe. <laughs> just and a country boy coming out knowing what those tracks are for. <laughs> yeah, the city girl is just thinking dirt. <laughs> And there is, um, you know, like I said, I mean, his writing is, is very much agrarian and, you know, a lot of what, and, and there, he is Christian in, in some sense. Uh, and I say in some sense, it's because it, a lot of the values come out, but not a lot of writing on that. So I don't, I don't feel comfortable saying exactly, you know, what that means to him, but in his writing, what you see is that there's a relationship that we'd have with the land or that we should have with the land. Um, and so the, and the idea being that the land, whether we've treated it well, whether we've you know, damaged it, um, you know, whether we've depleted it of its nutrients through certain types of farming, you know, regardless of, you know, regardless of, of whether we've treated the land well or whether we've treated the land bad, that it's going to be there after we're gone. And so another generation will benefit from how we've treated the land or another generation will deal with the consequences of how we've treated the land. Now, from the, the Christian perspective, it's very much a creation aspect because, yeah, like we we will resurrect and we will live eternally and in new creation, it'll be awesome. But for this creation that's groaning and waiting for restoration, it's going to live on after we're gone. And so you know, even at, at the the college group I, I lead at church, we were talking this morning about God wanted us to have a relationship with creation and he made creation not just to provide for us. And I think so often the, the Western Anglo-Saxon uh, European mindset has been that the land is there for our use and, and that's it. So we take, 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 um, but there is something about creation that calls for us to to care for it because of you know the easy way out as a christian is going to be well it's all going to be destroyed and recreated and <laughs> and all okay um but god calls us to be stewards of the earth and having dominion you know the word in genesis having dominion over the earth doesn't mean to just continually take it for granted and take advantage of it and um, you know, strip it of, you know, whatever you th I think of uh, some of the mountaintop removal in West Virginia and in Kentucky mm -hmm. and, you know, and, I, and it's, it's fine, I guess. I mean, you're getting coal, you're using it for energy, but it's like mm -hmm. the effects of some of that um, that you see, um, you know, we're, we're leaving things for a generation there. And so from the creation aspect, I think it, it calls us to question, you know, what tracks are we leaving um, on the earth? And what will remain when we're gone? Um, what print will remain when we're gone? Will it be good? Will it be bad? And very much just considering as a Christian, what should our relationship with creation look like? And, you know, piggybacking off of that, you know, in the poem, it says, uh, this long putting away of things uh, may be useful was not all of art's caretaking. He cared for creatures also. And I think, you know, while we are called to be um, definitely stewards of of creation i think we're also called to be stewards of each other and i think that that's what 
social media at times um, and just technology at times robs us of, right? Because you mentioned, you know, we're not just called um, as Westerners to just take from the land. We're also called to give. And I think online and in social media, you know, we can take, take, take. I can take advice from people. I can take lessons from people, but I don't have to give anything. You know, in some cases, I don't even have to pay for it. So I think that sometimes we need to reconsider, you know, how much we are taking uh, from others. I know like for Donovan and I, you know, with social media, we've taken kind of a step back because we, we thought, you know, we took a lot last year from social media. We benefited a lot from it, but what did we actually give? You know, did we actually give encouragement and, and joy, or did we give complaints and opportunities for someone else to maybe, um, look down upon their own lives, you know? And so, um, I think that it really has us thinking more about how can we care, take care of others, even, you know, using social media, even using technology, uh, whether that means we're, you know, sharing good news in the hopes of bringing God more glory in the hopes of inspiring other people, right. Or whether that's, um, sharing, you know, birthday wishes with people and making people feel special because we remembered their birthday, you know, just things like that. Um, because I think that with our world becoming increasingly tech, technological, we do have to consider how we can steward other people and steward um, the hearts and lives of others, like Art did, you know, where he helped other people physically. You know, we can consider, well, how can we do that in this technologically comprised world? Yeah, you can You can really see, um, just from the poem, I mean, whether you realize, or I mean, whether you know a lot about Art Rowanberry or not, you can really see that kind of person he is, you know, that that his relationship with people and, and the membership of Port William and something really interesting. Um, you know, I, th- I thought I was, I was reading this this morning before church and the very last part of the poem, he talks about the things he found and um, he says he found a key to a lock that would no longer open. And, you know, I think that's kind of in you know, related to what we talked about with the things he was finding that was really old and rusted and stuff like that. But there, I feel like there's a double meaning there too, where it's almost like art has died now, and this barn, all the things that they're finding in this barn, is the key, like to a lock that will not open again. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a key to the life of a man that you will never get to talk to again. You know, this side of eternity. Um, you know, and I, I just remember when my uncle died uh, right right across the road from where I live now. Um, I was 11 and that was the first time I had to deal with significant loss. Mm -hmm. And I had spent a ton of time with him, but I remember when we were going through some of the stuff, um, at parts of the property I hadn't really been to before and just saw like it was a window into who he was and the things that he did. Mm -hmm. When I knew him, he ran a sawmill and that was it. This other part of the property we're going through, you start seeing all these things for cattle and all this Mm -hmm. stuff for livestock. And I'm like, Okay, and I start asking questions, and I get stories from my dad and my grandfather about, mm-hmm. you know, who he was before I was born, and it was a window, you know, I think into who he was, and you know, I, of course, I would rather, you know, be able to talk to him or yeah. you know, talk to them at the same time, but you know, just like Andy would probably rather be able to sit down and talk to Art again, but he's got this barn, and this barn absolutely tells a story, and it kind of goes back to you know, what we said a, a, a few times is you know what we leave behind will tell a story about how we lived our life and that's something that we have to i think be conscious of and be thinking about 
um, every decision that we make, whether it's in relationship to the land, in relation with people, um, you know, whatever that looks like, there there is a footprint, there is a stewardship, and how we respond to that call, you know, it will have consequences or benefits to those who are left behind. Well, that reminds me of my mom. I actually had a dream of her last night. Uh, my mom passed away a couple years ago, and I was kind of surprised when we went through her stuff that she didn't have stuff. Um, everything that we went through were, were gifts that other people had given her, but there was nothing that she had that was her own. You know, her, her wedding rings had been pawned before she died, uh, because she was trying to cover some bill, you know, for one of her kids or something. And she had no jewelry at all. Her clothes were not anything that she bought herself because she was constantly giving it to other people. So, uh, she died from cancer and then Alzheimer's. Um, the cancer led to the Alzheimer's, the early onset. And so, uh, when she had died, you know, all that was left were these clothes and these things that other people had gotten her. But it reminded me that, you know, what she had left when she died was her family, you know, her Mm -hmm. kids. Uh, we, we held her memories. We held her, her riches. You know, um, I think about, you know, when I look at, at my family and I look at what they've been able to accomplish and what they've been able to do and, and how each of them carry a different part of my mom, whether it's, in appearance or whether it's an act or whether it's in character, um, you know, she, while she didn't have anything, you know, that I could physically see, uh, we couldn't, there wasn't anything that I could take away from her home, um, to take away with me. I was, I'm always reminded by, you know, my family that, that we bear her, that we carry her. So I thought, you know, I thought about that when you, you had mentioned that. Yeah. I, I think that there's all, like, we all have people that, that we've lost that's impacted us and, and there's there's always things left behind and you know it, whether it's this barn or what you were sharing about your mom i mean there's um there's there's things that that we leave behind when we're gone that will tell a story in psalm 145 you know it, it makes me think verse 4 each generation will praise your works to the next and proclaim your mighty acts and verse 5, I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the story of your wonders. And so that's got kind of both themes we're talking about here in the sense that, you know, we, we have a relationship with creation and it calls us to meditate on that and to consider what our relationship with it will be. But also it talks about the story of, of God's wonders and the story of God's wonders you know, is everything from the Red Sea opening to our grandparents sharing a story about God coming through for, for them if they were believers or something that's happened in our life. Anytime that we've seen God act in that. And so uh, the, the stories and the relationship of creation, you know, those things we leave behind for other generations. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about the beginning of that, too, where um, the beginning of the poem where it says in Art Rowenberry's uh, barn, when Arch Def had become quietly a fact among the other facts. And just how quickly, you know, we can forget those who have passed on. But I think, you know, to that point, the things that they leave behind do tell the story so that we don't forget them, whether that be, you know, physical things or the impact that they made on people. Yeah, and it's interesting, other facts, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's so similar. And, enough, you know, I've read enough of Wendell Berry's poetry to feel like this is probably intentional that it sounds almost like artifacts, you yeah. know? Um, and what do we use artifacts for? 
well, we never met anyone that lived a thousand years ago, mm-hmm. but through artifacts, we're able to piece together the story of what their community looked like or what their membership was like. Yeah. Also, too, I like the imagery that he uses uh, about the three hammer stones being picked up from the open pharaoh on days now as perfectly forgotten as the days when they were mm-hmm. uh, lost. And I could just imagine, you know, losing something on that day. And I just think of myself whenever, you know, something bad happens within my day or lose something or something doesn't go the way that I expect it. You know, sometimes it's not as, in the big scope of things, it's not as large as I think it is. And just thinking about just how something like that, losing something, I'm sure it was probably not the most ideal thing, but the day in which it was lost is now forgotten, just like the tools. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting phrase. I had to read that a few times to consider what Mm -hmm. he was trying to say there. (laughs) I think, you know, one of the last things is, uh, we've we've referenced this. We've not really dove into it, and we can probably dive into this and then end the podcast. But one of the first things that you know Barry introduces in the poem is Andy Catlett found a jacket made of the top half of a pair of coveralls after the legs wore out. For art never wasted anything. And when I read that at first, I was like, "Man, come on, Wendell, that's bad poetry." Like, that you said that the jacket was made from the top half of a pair of coveralls after the legs wore out. You don't have to tell me he never wasted anything. You just proved it. Um, but I think there was, you know, there's a, again, um, you know, his name is Arthur, but everyone called him Art Rowanberry. You know, I think it's a play on words of just, you think of art and like the beauty and creation, whether it's, you know, when I say art, I don't mean necessarily painting, but it's taking everything that's ordinary, everything that's average, and seeing the usefulness and seeing the beauty in that, mm. um, you know, it's not wasting anything. And then you you continue through the poem to see evidence of, of his, I guess, utilitarianness. I don't think that's a word, but um, it sounds sounds good. If I hadn't have said it's not a word, people probably would have thought it was. So his utilitarianness. But it was a different generation, and my grandparents came from that generation where they're they're not very wasteful my great-grandparents absolutely was from that generation um you know and and he's a careful box made of wood scraps you know it's not necessarily just a it's not a scrap box it's very careful very intentional box used or made with things that was used and left over it seems like every year my wife and i are going through our closet and giving clothes away (laughs) that we just don't wear and then you wonder how we get them and things like that. Or, you know, I go through and um, the other day we cleaned out the pantry and it was just food in there that had expired and things that we've never even eaten. And you just you think about that and, again, all related to the story that we're telling, what we're leaving behind, of just making use of the things around us and not being wasteful as a, as a virtue. We don't consider how wasteful we we really are sometimes, but um, you know I think that that very much is a godly virtue and and one that affects the story we leave behind for for others. So, any final thoughts? I hope whoever's listening to this walks away with just a desire to to live more simply and to consider more the impact that they're leaving behind. But don't consider it in a way of doing all these big things because I think art shows us that it's not the big things that we do. Um, that really speak, you know, about our character. It's the small things. It's the little ways that we help people. It's the little ways that we 
take care of our environment. It's the stuff that we save. It's the um, way we live generously and yet at the same time live frugally uh, that really does speak volumes to other people. Yeah. I think just being purposeful too. You know, if you, Ricky, you were pointing out just some of the things that he repurposed to be used for other things. And I think there has to be a purpose, purposefulness to that and being able to just just really, I guess, take in our life and just realize that, you know, we're only here for a moment and every moment is of value and just, you know, having that perspective on things. Yeah, for sure. And, and go read some more Wendell Berry. Um, if you feel like going and buying a farm in Kentucky, you know, go for it. I got nothing against Kentucky and nothing against farming. But I think the point is to, you know, what Donovan and Denise just, just shared to live simply in the community that you're in. So go engage a neighbor, go, if you see someone doing something, if you see someone working on their house, see someone working in their yard, working on their car, you know, go join in invite them over cook together i don't know but but engage in the community establish yourself as a member of the membership that you're a part of whether you were born there or not um and then don't make life too complicated i mean i see it just way way too often it's you know especially parents they Mm -hmm. especially church parents it seems like you know, they're doing every church activity. They're going to soccer practice and football practice and basketball practice, and they're working extra hours. And it's just like life is too complex. And we are leaving a story behind. We are leaving a footprint. And once we're gone, you know, is that really the story we want our kids, our neighbors to be talking about? So, anyway, food for thought, food from. Wendell Berry's Poetry Farm. Thank you for joining our podcast today. Join us next time for our next work of literature to be determined. I hope you've enjoyed this. Give us a good review. The more reviews we get, the more people can find us, and the more people can be exposed to good literature and theology, because we are Theolit, where we meet at the intersection of theology and literature. Thanks. Off to the Super Bowl. Adios. Thank you for listening to the Theolib Podcast. Head over to iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts from and leave us a good review. We'll catch you next time at the intersection of theology and literature.